So Pastor Greg is on vacation, so continue to pray for him and Donna that it's a, it's a good time uh, for them to recover, recharge, and you're stuck with me this morning, um, so I apologize in advance, but I'd like uh, just a little discretion. This morning is uh, going to be a lot of information coming at you, uh, so hopefully it's not too overwhelming. It may seem like a fire hydrant approach a little bit. Um, so I like to start out a little more lighthearted and a little less information. So have you heard about the one about a plane that is about to crash? Has a pilot, a scientist, a pastor, and a student, but there are only three parachutes. The pilot, knowing that the plane is going down, um, takes the parachute reasoning, hey, I've done a lot of schooling for this. I spent a lot of money. Um, this is very important for me to fly people around the world. Uh, it takes years to become a pilot and I'm worth more than you guys are. Um, and so he grabs a parachute and he jumps out of the plane. The scientist then takes the parachute thinking he's the smartest and he jumps. That leaves the pastor and the student. And the pastor, knowing Jesus, uh, he knows that he's going to be the Lord of the plane, is going to crash. And he says to the student, um, deeply moved with a lot of love, um, to take the last parachute. And the student responds that there is no need. There's still two parachutes left because the scientist jumped with a student's backpack. <laughs> so have you ever thought you had the real thing only to find that it wasn't real at all? So the scientist jumped off thinking he had a real parachute only to realize the truth after jumping off the plane that he had a backpack full of books, maybe to soften the blow a little bit, uh, but not to save his life. Maybe you had what you thought was a gold ring, but then it got tarnished. And maybe your boyfriend gave you a diamond, but it turned out to be a cubic zirconia. Sorely disappointed. Um, you thought what you had was real, but then you found out otherwise, and you were probably sorely disappointed. Has that ever happened to you before? I would argue that this has happened to all of us at some point in our lives. But I would argue that there was a time many of us here have thought we were living good lives only to later find out the truth. So for me, growing up, I was confronted with the, the truth of this reality. I thought that I could somehow earn God's salvation, His love. I thought if I didn't swear, if I listened to Christian music, that I would rack up these points with God. That if I said please and thank you, if I was a good little boy who respected my teachers, and my friend's parents, I would earn God's love. You guys remember the, the movies and books Left Behind? They're kind of kind of weird or whatever. Um, but I would have dreams that I was left behind because I didn't do enough good. And it wasn't until I was confronted with the truth of the gospel that I realized I couldn't do enough good to save myself that I needed a Savior, and that Savior was Jesus Christ. My eyes were opened, and I stopped having those dreams, and I started having confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ for my being made right with God. And Martin Luther was confronted with the same truth of God's Word, and this is what he said as he studied through the book of Romans. Until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith, that is being made right before God by faith. 
Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn, to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. He was referencing studying the book of Romans. Martin Luther was made alive. His eyes were open to the reality of the beauty of Jesus Christ and the grace that is found in him. This inspired him to share this truth with others. A little background on Martin Luther. Maybe you're not familiar with who he is. Martin Luther was a son of a miner who became a monk after surviving a terrible thunderstorm. He kind of made this deal. He prayed to a saint and he said, hey, if I survive this, I'm going to dedicate my life to following God. And he poured his heart and soul into doing enough good to be made right with God. He'd pray all night. He'd study all day. He'd confess to priests until he was blue in the face. He was stuck on the treadmill of moralism, of doing more good than bad. But then his eyes were opened to the truth that we are made right with God by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to the Scriptures alone. During the time of Martin Luther, the Roman Catholic Church was the prominent church of that time. And during that time, the Pope was the ultimate authority. The Bible was written in Latin. Most people couldn't read at all. And so the the people were dependent on the medieval Roman Catholic Church for truth. And the truth that the church was teaching at the time was not the truth of God's Word. And so Martin Luther wanted people to know this good news, this truth. So on October 31st in 1517, he nailed his 95 theses on the front door of the church in Wittenberg. And out of that, the Protestant Reformation was born, which is where our denomination, the EFCA, was born as well, along with many others. And the Reformation was this huge shift, but out of it we get these things called the five solas. If you're here this morning and you've never heard of what the five solas are or the Protestant Reformation, that's totally okay. It's exactly who I was thinking of as I was preparing this morning. And I want to clarify what these five solas are, why they're so crucial and what they mean for us today. And Pastor Greg's going to be taking these individually each week in the coming weeks to go deeper. So this is very introductory this morning. So what are the five solas of the Protestant Reformation? The five solas are five Latin phrases popularized during the Protestant Reformation that emphasize the distinction between early reformers and the Roman Catholic Church. The word sola is a Latin word for only and was used in relation to five key teachings that define the biblical pleas of Protestants. And they are sola gratia, grace alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, sola fide, faith alone, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, sola scriptura, scripture alone. And the Protestant Reformation was a movement in the 16th and 17th centuries in Europe which tried to reform the Roman Catholic Church. So that's where we get the word reformation because of the perceived doctrinal and moral corruption that undermined the Christian gospel. 
So the good news of Jesus Christ was at stake here. But the result was not reform, but exclusion. The reformers were not tolerated in the church. They were pushed out of the church. Many were burned at the stake for heresy. And today within Christianity, Roman Catholics and Protestants are the two largest groups among 2.2 billion professing Christians. So something was massive at stake in the Reformation. I'm going to go through these solas really briefly here. Sola Scriptura emphasized the Bible alone as a source of authority for Christians. By saying Scripture alone, the Reformers rejected both the divine authority of the Roman Catholic Pope and confidence in sacred tradition. Only the Bible was inspired by God, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, and God breathed, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Anything taught by the Pope or in tradition that contradicted the Bible was to be rejected. Sola Scriptura also fueled the translation of the Bible into German, French, English, and other languages and prompted Bible teaching in the common language rather than in Latin, which was what they were doing before. So imagine coming here Sunday morning for four to six hours, that's typically how long the services were back then, and hearing the Bible taught in a language you couldn't understand. So it's a, it's a big deal, this sola scriptura, and it spurred on some amazing things that we take for granted so often today. Sola fide emphasizes salvation as a free gift. The Roman Catholic Church of the time emphasized the use of indulgences, um, so donating money to cover your sins, so you could pay for someone who is in purgatory, maybe a grandma and grandpa, um, and kind of get their sins forgiven by donating money to the Catholic Church. Um, and so that affected your status with God. And good works, including baptisms, were seen as requirement for salvation. Sola Fide stated salvation is a free gift to all who accept it by faith. John 3.16 Salvation is not based on human effort or good deeds. Ephesians 2.9 So that's Sola Fide. Sola Gratia emphasizes grace as our reason for salvation. In other words, salvation comes from what God has done rather than what we do. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 teaches, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Solus Christus, through Christ alone, emphasizes the role of Jesus in salvation. The Roman Catholic tradition had placed church leaders, such as priests, in the role of intercessor between people and God. Reformers emphasize Jesus' role as our high priest who intercedes on our behalf before the Father. Hebrews 4.15 teaches, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus is the one who offers access to God, not a human spiritual leader. Soli Deo Gloria emphasizes the glory of God as the goal of life. Rather than our striving to please church leaders, um, keeping a list of rules, or guarding our own interests, our goal is to glorify the Lord. The idea of Soli Deo Gloria is found in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
So the five solas of the Protestant Reformation offered a strong correction to faulty practices and beliefs of that time, and they remain relevant for us today. So the question is, why are these important? Why should we listen to these things? Why should we remember these things at all? Here are a few quotes that I found on the internet. Did a lot of research here, um, Google search. And they really emphasize the importance of these five solos, and they get progressively more and more serious. This is the first one. The five solos are Latin phrases that collectively served as foundational principles of the Protestant Reformation. So they're important to people who are Protestants. So here's the next one, second quote. The five solos are five Latin phrases or slogans that emerged during the Reformation to summarize the Reformers' theological convictions about the essentials of Christianity. So it's important to Christians across the board, not just Protestantism. So if they're not embraced, Christianity is not embraced. And here's the last quote. The five solos of the Protestant Reformation are a foundational set of biblical principles held by theologian and churchmen to be central to the doctrine of salvation. So they define how a person is saved, how a person is made right before God. So this brings up the question, how are we saved? From what are we saved? Why do we need to be saved? What's the problem that the five solas make necessary? What's this talk of salvation? And quick disclaimer here, just because something is old doesn't make it true. Uh, there's kind of this popular thing, hey, if it's written a long time ago, it's got to be true. Um, nostalgic, vintage, whatever you want to call it. So we need to look at the Word of God to really test if something is true and right, which is what we're going to do this morning. So buckle up. Uh, we're going to cruise through a lot of Scripture this morning. You can follow in your Bibles if you're a really fast page turner. Otherwise, we got the verses on the screen or you can uh, use your phone as well, or iPad. So Paul, in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9, this is what he says. What then are we Jews? Paul was a Jewish apostle. Any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, all of us, both Jews and Greeks, this is a way of summarizing all the people of the Roman Empire, and for us, everyone today, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. So because of our sin, no one has a righteous standing before God. So if we have to depend on our own righteousness, all of us are in big, big trouble. No, not one. Again, not one human being can stand before God as righteous. And then skipping down to verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have not treasured, we have not loved, we have not esteemed, not admired the glory of God. And that is the very essence of sin. And as a result, none of us are right before God. So consequently, in Romans 6.23, so to the next passage, this is what it says, For the wages of sin, the wages of this condition, is death. You take sin as your slave master, your employer. If you submit to sin, live in sin, which newsflash all of us do, myself included. You can talk to my sister if you don't believe me. What we earn is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the contrast here with eternal life 
is that this death is worse than a physical death. It is the opposite of eternal life. And what, what makes this so bad is Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have been justified, which is declared right before God, by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him, referencing Christ, from the wrath of God. So there is the issue. This eternal death means that if we are not saved by Christ, if we are not declared right before God, if something doesn't happen to change our condition, we are under the wrath of God. And here's how Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, and 10. I told you we're going to be cruising through a lot of Scripture this morning. You turn to God from idols, that's what we all ought to do, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. If we don't find deliverance, this is what the Protestant Reformation was all about. How can sinners find deliverance from the wrath of God? How can we escape? Here's the way John puts it in the gospel that he wrote, John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has eternal life. There's escape. There's deliverance. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In other words, we're all on the wrath of God. We're all with the wrath of God because we're sinners and no one is righteous. And there's a way to not remain in it but to escape from it through belief in the Son into eternal life. So there's the problem that the Reformation was addressing from outside of us. Guilt before God, the wrath of God. But here's the problem that makes it worse. What about the problem inside of us? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, Skipping down to verse 3, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. And you were by nature. It was our nature, our natural state, like the rest of mankind. So he wasn't talking about one group here, but everybody. Verse 4, but God being so rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So here's our true condition. We are by nature so rebellious and contrary to God that we live in a natural state of deserving wrath. And we are spiritually unable to solve our own problem because we are dead. Here's the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural, who by nature are children of wrath, remember, person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, foolishness, and he is not able. So it's not only that we don't accept it, that we're not able to, to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And we are spiritually dead. And we are spiritually dead as guilty sinners. We are rebellious. We love our sin more than we love God and his glory. And this de deadness and inability is a guilty one. Here's how he puts it in Romans 8, 7, and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh, that's us by nature, is hostile to God. You may not feel hostile. You may be saying, I'm not hostile. I don't even pay attention to God. 
But there is a root of hostility of why you don't pay attention. You don't want to. And none of us by nature want to submit to God who reigns over us. We are rebellious, selfish people who are hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So there again, it moves from does not to not able. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So this is our great problem from the inside. So from the outside, we have wrath, and on the inside, we have deadness. And that's what the Protestant Reformation knew we had to find out. What does the Bible say is the way out? Is there hope that we could ever live and not die eternally? That we could have eternal life with God forever? Is there a way that we can escape the wrath of God? And the answer is yes. This is the good news of Christianity. And the answer that the Protestant Reformation found in the Bible was this. Our may made being alive in Christ and escaping the wrath of God is by God's grace on the basis of Christ alone received through faith alone so that all things lead ultimately to the glory of God alone with Scripture alone as the only final decisive authority for discerning, teaching, and defending these truths. I want to read a passage in Romans that just brings to life this reality. In Romans 3, 21 through 26, this is what it says. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. Moralism, right? We can't do it. As was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God in his grace freely make us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who had sinned in times past. For he is looking ahead and including them in what he was going to do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just. And he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. So if you are here this morning and if you've been running on this treadmill of doing good to earn God's love to save yourself, there is not enough good works that you can do to save yourself. We have to look outside of ourselves and to Jesus' righteousness on our behalf for hope and salvation. There is nothing we can do to take away or add to being made right before God. It is only by trusting Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that we are saved. In the same way that there was a need for the Reformation back then, there is a need for a Reformation for us today. We have to get back to the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ. We have to make God's Word central in our life and sharing the hope that we have with Christ to those around us. We'll be tempted to back away from what the Word of God says to appease people. We may have the desire to stray away from the truth of God's Word so we don't offend other people, but the truth of God's Word by nature is offensive. We have to proclaim the excellencies of Christ to the world around us. 
We need to stay rooted in God's word and we need to live our lives to glorify him. So I'm excited for this series on the five solas for Pastor Greg to dive in a little more deep into it and give you some history on it. But the reality is that we gather together because of the hope that we have in Jesus. And it's not about doing good and being good enough to save ourselves. It's about what Christ has done for us and making much of Christ. And uh, so that's the hope and the prayer. I'd like to uh, just pray for us, and then I'm going to invite the elder to pray again. I just feel like I'd like to pray for us this morning. Would you bow with me? God, I thank you for your mercy and your grace that it's extended to us on the cross. I thank you for some of us that we maybe just came to this realization of who you are and what you've done. Maybe some of us are stuck in the thing I was stuck in growing up, thinking that if I did enough, God would love me. If I did enough, I would be saved. But we thank you for your grace, that it's free, that it's not something we deserve. We did nothing to get it, but yet you extend it to us. I pray that uh, those who are again trying to earn their own righteousness, that they would trust in you, that they would find the weight of this trying to be enough and do enough to please you and find that they are pleased in Christ. We love you. We praise you. In life, we have life in you, forgiveness of sins. May our hearts and our love for you increase and our love for others. And may we proclaim this truth, this beauty of the reality of your wrath, but how you saved us through Christ. And may we not forget that. In your name we pray. Amen.